Let me pray before we reflect on those passages. Loving God, as we live in uncertain times and have a range of thoughts, concerns, things that trouble us, weigh heavily upon us, help us to discern not only your presence but the way in which you are at work. May we recognise the light in the darkness and the hope that comes through your gospel. We pray this both personally and as your church community. In Jesus' name, amen. It's often the case that we can only get an understanding of history in hindsight. History itself is actually a a reflection, an account, a narrative of events that have occurred. It's not the same as the events themselves. When we are in the midst of those events, we can be aware that things are happening that are momentous. But just what we make of it, what's been going on, why we find ourselves in these circumstances, what lies ahead, is the work of history. We've been living in the midst of events that we've known at the time are profoundly changing. changes our notions of what is normal, our expectations. When we were living through the COVID crisis, this was not normal. I suspect no one, in fact I'm pretty confident that no one, has lived through a pandemic of that nature. And we found ourselves in circumstances that we know someday I'm going to come back and reflect on that moment. For me, one that stays with me was being in the uh, supermarket on Saints Road, going in our normal weekly shop, entered the store, a couple of dozen people going about their, their shopping until suddenly people were on their phones and a bit of intensity emerged. I did a quick little check myself and that was the day, the moment that South Australia had our um, shutdown, lockdown announced. The Premier of the time said at five o'clock that evening we'll be going into restricted uh, circumstances. Nothing like it was in Victoria but still quite memorable. Within 10 or 15 minutes the numbers of people in the supermarket increased tenfold. By the time I went to go to the checkouts and the long queues at the checkouts, the queue to enter the supermarket was out into the car park as people were realising they needed to stock up. For some reason, lots and lots of toilet paper was being stocked up. But but in those moments, you know, this is not normal and not quite sure what's going to lie ahead. What What impact is this going to have on us? And we have learned through that after COVID, things aren't exactly the same. There's some measure of normality, but even that keeps changing. The whole notion that there's some default normal mode of life that everything comes back to, I think, is now gone. The past week has given us a number of events that we recognise are profound events But just where it takes us, no one is quite sure. The referendum 
Yesterday, I think, is one of those events. It's not often that we have referendums in Australia to change the constitution and the whole process, I don't think anyone has come away from it saying, well, that was a good discussion. It's been bruising. It has been troubling. And uh, quite what damage that has caused, I think, still lives with us. As I said at the start of the service, um, Fiona and I do know a number of Aboriginal friends. One in particular had a very raw post last night to say he just questions his whole place in this community, whether he has any place, any identity, whether his identity counts for anything. And we need to recognise that these are deep, deep thoughts. I personally, and I know I'm not alone, I know across our church community a whole variety of opinions and views and how people are voting. I'm not commenting on that in itself. But I've personally felt gutted last night, really deeply hurt and troubled. I think about generations of younger Aboriginal children whose hopes were to be that they would have a a, rec- a place in the community going forward, who have expressing a sense of despair, a sense of hopelessness, a sense that their culture of his been pushed aside. Now I know that wasn't the intention of how people vote and I know it wasn't the consideration but just what harm or what response that is going to stir up no one knows. No one can pretend to know. So as I said at the start of the service this is a time for us to tread gently as a community as a society. A bit later in our service before our intercessions I'm going to be using a, a listening It's a structured prayer. It was written weeks ago. It's not shaped around, it wasn't a plan A, plan B type of prayer. It was regardless of the outcome. And I found it very helpful to reflect on that. But it could well be that it'll be a generation or two before we get another opportunity to address some of those concerns and those issues. In fact, one of the most esteemed constitutional lawyers in Australia doubts whether there will be any referendums going into the future. It may well be that the ease in which the pushback has comes that the uh, a very bold Prime Minister to go forward with a referendum going into the future. Now, I'm not speaking to the issues themselves. My own thoughts and reflections are known, but just what this means, no one really is quite sure what lies ahead. Where do we go to pick up I think everyone recognises that the status quo is not good enough. But what the future is remains to be shaped. And then, of course, we've had the troubling stories and news out of Israel. An act of terrorism, brutal act of terrorism, calculated, leaves us reeling. And as we reflect on just acts that aren't just warfare, they're just evil, some of the accounts. And the fear of what the response is going to be, what the Middle East will look like, what the neighbours are going to buy into or not. sense that 
that region is probably never going to be the same again after these events. Where do we go with those questions? Well, as it was a few weeks back, I had the bright idea of starting a series between now and Advent on for times such as these. And I'll stay with a series. I was tempted to set it aside, but I've reflected on it and I want to stay with it because I think it does speak into our own, um, our own times. Where I want to land with this series, and I haven't actually designed the rest of it, I haven't even designed next week for that matter, um, is that by the last Saturday in November, on a Saturday morning, um, I want to gather many people as possible from our church to pray and to discern big picture questions about where we go as a church, not just ideas for the next 12 months, but the sort of changes and the sort of directions that for the next five or ten years may provide a, a profound, some pathways, and to discern God's calling, invitation for us to enter into it. So the series is going to explore uh, a wonderful phrase, liminal times. And like all profound words, you think liminal, not quite sure what it means, but I think it's significant. It comes from a Latin word, as all the best profound words do. It means threshold. We stand at a threshold, a doorway. And it isn't just a question of where do we go, what steps do we take, but also of timing. So I'll explore that a bit further as we go in our series. But there is a strong sense that we are living in a turning point in history and a strong sense that we will be drawn into that one way or another. For the best part of a thousand years, the church, the mainstream church in the Western world has had a recognised, established and privileged position in society. It's been given lands, given resources to develop, a lot of capacity to be a significant voice in the community. And it's been seen, second half of the 20th century going into this century, that that is not the same. When I was trained for ministry almost 40 years ago, in fact it was 40 years ago, gosh, there you go, um, it was largely a case of you know, how do you do a reasonable service? How do you advertise it and open the doors and give people a welcome when they come and do some pastoral visiting? These days, fewer and fewer people will come in through the doors just by advertising this is when we're meeting or gathering. The world around us is changing profoundly. The church is no longer in that established, privileged position. And that's actually probably healthy for us. But it means that we can't have a complacency, the assumption that it's like the tide on Dover Beach. Someday the tide's going to come back in again. It's not going to happen. Whatever lies ahead, it will not be what it has been in the past. Many churches, in fact all churches, are working through those, those challenges. But it is not all in one direction. Some churches are vibrant and stable. Some churches are growing. Some churches have a number of families and children and others all part of their community and a whole mix of different ethnicities. So it isn't a case of it's the same for everyone. And it isn't that the way forward is the same for everyone. But every church, actually in every generation, needs to ask the question, where does God want to take us? 
And are we willing to follow where God calls and invites us? One of my favourite phrases is, what on earth is God doing? And we have moments in life where we ask ourselves the question, what on earth is God doing? I find myself, when I look at the news, asking myself, where is God in the midst of these events? And it can be not just troubling, it can be to the point of despair unless we recognise that God is present in and through all those moments. One of the great things about scripture is that the Bible names those moments. One of them, the big ones, was the people in captivity in Egypt, in slavery under the pharaohs, and their work was hard and they cried, cried out to God, where are you, God? Do you hear us? Do you care? And we know how God raised up Moses and came back and they escaped from Egypt. There's a number of moments that are named throughout the Bible stories of where on earth, what on earth is God doing that actually begins to provide answers. And in hindsight, people can see how God was actually present and guiding and opening up ways into a new future. I want to start with a phrase called Missio Dei. Now, a number of you have heard me express this before, and I'll keep on expressing it because it is such a vital truth. Again, it's all good phrases. It has to be in Latin, Missio Dei. Uh, what does it mean? The shorthand version is the mission of God, but actually the longer version is more important. It is the sending of God. Missio is to send. It is the sending of God. God sends himself into the world. You think about the, the moment in the first few verses of the Bible as the uh, darkness hovered over the deep. God sent the Spirit, spent his breath into the world to make a difference, to bring order out of chaos, to bring light out of darkness, to bring peace and prosperity and flourishing out of that which was barren and, and uh, wilderness. God enters into and God sends himself into the world. Now the phrase Missio Dei is actually one that um, has a significant pedigree, but in the last 20 or 30 years it's been rediscovered and it is reshaping um, not just theology and our understanding of God, but our understanding of what it means to be a church and our understanding of mission. It is one of the most significant truths, I believe, that has been re-established in the life of a lot of theological reflection and dialogue. So much so that almost any ecumenical statement these days starts with some reflection on the Missio Dei. So what do we mean by this phrase? There's many different um, short versions of it, but I particularly like this one by David Bosch, who's a South African missiologist, sadly died in a car accident in the early 1990s, but he has a classic book called Transforming Mission that really has reshaped the landscape. And I'll be up front, this is one of my favourite quotes. Um, and uh, if you want to know where my theological journey has been since I was previously at St Matthew's and where I am now, this quote names a significant part of my theological journey. Okay, ready for the quote? Oh, I should just build the suspense up. Okay, this is Bosch's 
explanation of what do we mean by the Missio Dei. Our mission has not life of its own. Only in the hands of the sending God can it truly be called mission. Now, many associations and businesses and others come up with their mission statements. Churches can gather around and come up with all sorts of ideas and call it, this is our mission. But unless that mission is of God, it is nothing. The only mission that counts is God's mission. Not least since the missionary initiative comes from God alone. Mission is thereby seen as a movement of, from God to the world. That is the profound insight. God is, God's very DNA is missional. The church is viewed as an instrument for that mission. Now, that's a simple statement, and you think, well, yeah, of course, that's obvious. But it reframes a lot of our conversations. So many of our church planning and strategies are based around the survival of the church. Or our desire to see the church grow, so that's the end point. That is never the end point, the goal. The church is an instrument for the work of the kingdom, for the mission of God. There is church because there is mission, not vice versa. Mission doesn't exist for the church. The church exists for mission. For centuries, mission has been perceived as where a church sends out people beyond itself to do the mission work in other fields. And what we're hearing is, no, actually the mission is what happens in and through the church where we are. You don't have a mission department or a mission support group that is sort of one of the very options of people might get into in a church. Everything we do as a church is missional or should be missional. And then my favourite sentence, I guess the first will be one sentence. could almost put it on my tombstone, but anyway, that's not, that's a metaphor. Just a metaphor. But this is the one, I think, that really excites and informs why I love ministry. I love being where I am. To participate in mission is to participate in the movement of God's love toward people since God is a fountain of sending love. God is a fountain of sending love. And as the Father sent the Son and the Son and the Father sent the Spirit, so they now send the church, sends us. If you think about it, that well-known verse, John 3.16, I'm pretty sure 100% of people will get pretty much the verse right. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever might believe in him may not perish but have eternal life. The love of God leads to the sending of God. And that changes everything. And that sending includes us. So when we go for our discernment of what we might do, what lies ahead, the question really is, what is God wanting to do by way of our expressing his saving, redeeming love in our own community, in our own world, that we might be instruments of that mission? 
So let's come back to our passages. Isaiah 43 is a time when uh, the people of Israel have been taken in captivity to Babylon. Jerusalem has been destroyed, the walls are destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the holy items in the temple were taken over to captivity in Babylon. Now we've been revisiting that a number of times in recent weeks, so I'm not going to rehearse it overly. But it was one of those moments where saying, what is God doing while they're being on the waters of Babylon, weeping, remember what Jerusalem used to be like. It seems so far away. And the prophet said, the time has come. God's on the move. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And that is what happened. A small party of them came from Babylon, made their ways through the desert back to the promised land. And so the project of rebuilding Jerusalem and Judea and the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah went underway. But the thing is this, the phrase, that notion, theologically it's called typology, it gets revisited at other times when God says, and I'm God still doing a new thing. So Paul talks about it in his own message. God is doing a new thing amongst the Gentiles. And the prophets in the New Testament also say, God continues to be doing new things as he sends out and the church is now at work throughout the world. So what might this new thing look like? Well, we don't actually know. One thing we do know is it won't be like what was in the past. It won't go back to looking at what Sir Matthews was like in the 1950s and the 60s and the 70s. We celebrate that, we thank God for that, but we can't go back to it. Whatever the future is, is something that is yet to be realised. And that is what we pray for. When it comes to the New Testament, Jesus was, had the potential to go through a what is God doing a moment. The start of the passage had one little line, but it's a profound line. When Jesus heard that John had been taken captive into prison under Herod, John, his cousin, John who had baptised him. And we know how that turned out. It was horrific. It was an act of terrorism, a power of just of uh, evil. Jesus knew that this moment is one in which God was looking to do a new thing. So Jesus' ministry moves into a whole new space, literally. Not only does he go up to Galilee... He moves from Nazareth, his hometown, to Capernaum and his public ministry then really goes into a full, full, um, fully operational mode. It sounds so inadequate as words, but Jesus' public ministry then stands out, his teaching, his example, his uh, healings, his power, the authority of which he speaks. But how is this named in Matthew and in Luke? It's also got a very similar one. They say, what is going on in this moment for Jesus? It's God moving. That fountain of God's love is to a people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. 
The light is, of course, Jesus, the light of the world. But remember how Jesus said in his teaching, this comes up in the next chapter in Matthew, you are my light. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't bury it somewhere. It should be up on the hill. So it's actually attracting people and making a difference and providing a, a point of orientation of how God is at work. God recognises those moments of darkness and is present in it and will work through it. That is where we find hope. Back in Genesis 1, when the work of creation, when the spirit moves upon the water, hope dawns through creation. When Jesus emerges with a profound work and ministry that would take him to the darkness of Good Friday, hope would prevail and is celebrated in the resurrection. And so we recognise that the darkness of the world is still there. We have moments of stunning, beautiful Adelaide at its best in spring and autumn. And we have moments when the clouds gather and they're brooding. That's what reality of life is. But the sun is there no less and will prevail. So we're going to explore a bit more about that in coming weeks. But just back to that word liminal. Liminal is at crossing point between that which is no longer and that which is no not yet. So there's a moment in which we know we can't go back to what was. We're moving out of something and things will never be quite the same again. But we've yet to really enter into what lies ahead, the not yet. And we find ourselves in this liminal space between the two. And it is a time for discernment of all the directions we could run off to, all the voices that we could listen to, all the plans that we could come up with. How can we discern where God is calling us? I believe that's where we are at St Matthew's at this stage in our history. We celebrate 175 years, but 176, 177, 178, they lie before us. We can't go back. We are in that space where if we just stay where we are, then those doors may close. I've had too many conversations as a bishop with parishes as I've gone around and we've talked about possibilities and dwindling numbers and who's going to fill our rosters. We're getting old and where are the younger people? What can we do? And we talk about some possibilities, how small churches can grow and can become highly relational, but it doesn't just happen. There needs to be an intentionality. And a number of times I've heard the word said, we don't disagree with you, you think they're great ideas, but the time is not right. Five years' time we think will be right. And literally in five years' time I have needed to have services for the closure of those church buildings. It does happen. There isn't a magic wand that regardless of whatever we do, that God's going to suddenly sweep through and just it's all going to be okay. God says, no, I want you to get up out of your seats. I want you to be prayerful. I want you to be trusting and to show faith and commitment and not just say that's a good idea, but get behind it and support it. I believe that we are in a space at St Matthew's where what we do in 
coming weeks and months, in the next two to three years, if we follow through on that, will begin to show fruit in five and ten years' time. But if we wait for five and ten years' time, it will be too late. Every generation needs to recognise that we cannot just focus on ourselves. So just what is through that door, I can't tell you. There's some interesting thoughts and ideas suggested and when we have our planning diet, there's some proposals that we will consider. We're not going to rush it and try and get ahead of ourselves but we cannot stay where we are and assume that all will be well just by staying in our comfort space here and now. So it is a significant time for us personally, as a church, and for our wider community. The future, if there is hope and if there is light, is where God is present. God is present. I have no doubt about that. But how we discern and seek to be in step and to recognise the invitations, the opportunities, that's for all of us to pray and to share and to discern. Please be in prayer. Amen.